And I'm Dr. Adam Jirachi. And you are listening to Love's a Secret Weapon podcast. Well, season two, Donna, and they said it wouldn't last. <laughs> it's, a, it's a brand new day, Adam. Happy, happy new year to you. Happy new year to you and happy new year to our listeners, because I think I speak for both of us when I say that we must thank our loyal listeners for their support as we launched Love's a Secret Weapon podcast in mid 2020 i think during so much change in the world the podcast really came about as we both wondered what we could do to bring some creativity both to our ourselves and to other people how we could start to be part of a dialogue during so much change in the world and you know i think this was a big part of your want to start this podcast was to really start a conversation through your own story about issues that may affect many of us at the micro level, be that family, relationships with parents, relationships with partners, with children, um, or the macro level, you know, those societal changes that impact all of us. And, you know, many of which started, as, as we discuss, in the decade that this podcast is really somewhat about, which is the 1960s. Oh, yes. Well, it's definitely a time of revolution. Even on a more intense level, we keep talking about the 60s as planting seeds. Well, the seeds are sprouting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the flower, the flower children concept of, you know, peaceful gatherings and we are all one is, um, is coming to be, even though we're all over the world experiencing so much division and so so much polarization in our politics especially in my country mm. in the US and um and it's it's really uh <laughs> i just had a a personal experience you know with confronting uh this opposing kind of thinking yeah and i tried my best to exercise compassion while i'm mm. saying my truth Mm. and not get into conflict and so i think that's what this this year and possibly most of this decade is going to be about is transitioning away from the me philosophy Mm. into the we um the virus you know is definitely in position to you know to characterize that don't you think Absolutely. I think it's a very, uh, it's not a test that we wanted. It was not an experience we wanted, but it perhaps is accelerating what has begun. And as you've said before, sort of laid dormant for so long. And, you know, as as that change comes through, like everything, there's always going to be resistance. Um, uh, But Perhaps it's a sign that we we can't keep continuing on the path that we are continuing on. Yes, and I I just wrote something on my Facebook page today, Mm. um, anticipating the Martin Luther King holiday that we in America celebrate Mm. coming up on January 18th. His birthday actually is the 15th. And um, what I was uh, speaking about on my Facebook page in relation to this is that what does Martin Luther King and Gandhi have in common? Mm-hmm. And, and what that was is not a nonviolent approach to, you know, settling 
differences yeah. of opinion mm. and coming together to create a solution mm. for you know society and um, live more as a community. And so there was a point that I was making, Adam, mm. <laughs> uh, about the uh, the faction of population on this planet. Mm that is totally amplified in my country about the concept of being invisible mm-hmm. and this this idea that you know when you're born as you're growing up and as you're developing in whatever you know situation you're in whether it's a mother father or a single parent that you are heard and seen and when you are not when you are not really heard or seen for who you are and i think you can relate you know you, you may have presented yourself in a way that made you feel safe but mm-hmm. could you really express yourself for who you really are mm-hmm. and certainly i i'm asking you that question but i certainly you know um paralleling my own experience that you know, I had to project a, a persona that truly wasn't my own mm. to cooperate with the people that I was living with. Yeah. And so, you know, to, to think about millions, tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions, maybe who knows, add, just keep adding zeros, you know, <laughs> to the people who are, feel invisible. Mm. Mm. And that I... Uh, then I propose to you, Adam, that what I think that leads to is narcissism. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, so it becomes a distorted way of finding value for yourself, but in the extreme where it goes only to the me, not mm. to the we. Mm. And therefore, the cruelty that we're, you know, we've been experiencing in my whole lifetime, in your lifetime, mm. and many, many millennium, many, you know, um, millennium. Yes. <laughs> Thousands of years. Yeah, for sure. Of cruelty. Cruelty. Where does that come from? You know, it's like, wait a minute. If I can feel what you can feel, mm-hmm. you know, um, th- so... That is where we're at now, I believe. We're at that crossroads where between the virus, you know, that the pandemic, which is the first one that has, mm. you know, touched everyone globally. Yeah, yeah, in knowledge. our lifetimes, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and the environmental issues of the global warming, etc. We are really on that threshold of coming together for survival and ultimately, you know, for thriving as a community, as a global community. And wow, that, you know, this is a big, big leap of, of faith in, in, our, in our time of, of living for such an incredible change. And it, it's so true, I think, because when we think of that, that what's the opposite of me and and of course as you said it's we but I think that breeds that compassion that you're talking about that when we see 
ourselves as part of a common humanity and we see other people as being a part of that common humanity rather than ourselves feeling isolated and that plays out in all sorts of you know maladaptive behaviors but also seeing other people as as not not a part of us and seeing them as different and you know not a part of our group or however we want to put that then that halts compassion it's when we can see ourselves and and other people in that common humanity that i think we can move away from so much division, which they, has just characterised these last several years and beyond. Mm-hmm. And I think that's always been our sort of motto with this is to, to you know, try to bring through your experiences, through some of my experiences, bring people in. And I know in 2021, we really want to open up that dialogue to you, the listener. And we have some initiatives that we'll share soon. But I just want to say, because I know, Donna, you wanted to open this sort of up to our listeners to begin. We'd love for them to share with us their thoughts on this episode or any of our other episodes and if they email in uh, to us at podcast at net, Donna will read them on our next episode or in subsequent episodes. So, you know, we want our audience to think, you know, have some of the experiences that we've spoken about been similar to the ones that they've experienced in their own lives. You know, maybe they have a story to tell about topics we've spoken about, whether it's the Vietnam War or the day that President Kennedy was killed. Or maybe they just even just like Shindig and they want to tell us about that. So, you know, 2021 in, in that spirit of connection is really where we want to open up this podcast even more to to those of you listening out there. Right on, right on. <laughs> it's, you know, we'll, we'll say the, um, the exclusiveness, which I'm interpreting as exclusion, becomes inclusion. Mm-hmm. So I do look forward to reading other people's, you know, thoughts about subjects that that we broach and possibly, you know, as I read our listeners' ideas and thoughts and comments, that I will choose one or two each episode mm. um, at the end of our of our chat to to discuss together. You know, I'll read it and then we can we can chat over it. Absolutely, that sounds great, and I think with that uh, spirit in mind, I think we should we should begin our first episode of the new year. And to remind uh, everyone where we last left off, uh, we were really getting into your time working on uh, Shindig. But what we need to, I guess, remember is that your primary commitment during those really busy days for you of working on Shindig and working on the Beach Party films, which we have some content coming up in a subsequent episode about beach blanket bingo but your primary commitment at that time was really to your contract with dr pepper and now we're going to pick up the story with some of your work with dr pepper thank you adam it's (laughs) it's really an honor and a privilege to share my life with you adam and with all of our listeners this is chapter eight shaken all over While I was doing a lot of traveling for Dr. Pepper, the company was definitely trying to gain a more significant position in the national spotlight. They really amped it up. (laughs) I began appearing and performing at open houses for new Dr. Pepper plants in cities all over the country. These new plants were a symbol of progress for providing new jobs. Many franchisers coordinated multiple soft drinks to be distributed from one bottling plant. 
at one opening in Las Vegas, Art Linkletter, my boyfriend's father, was there representing R.C. Cola. I was stunned when it came time to cut the ribbon because there was a bit of competition between my boyfriend's father and me. He knew me since I was 14, for goodness sake, but work is work. His competitive nature dominated that ribbon-cutting ceremony, and that was another time I just had to acquiesce. Bob, the third child in the Linkletter clan, was my first boyfriend. We met at the Deauville Club on PCH, the Pacific Coast Highway. The Deauville was like an old ballroom with a nice big stage, and it was right on the beach in Santa Monica. It was reminiscent of the Depression era, a la They Shoot Horses, Don't They?, referencing the shabby La Monica ballroom in that film with big arched windows that looked out onto the Pacific Ocean. It reeked of an era of Cole Porter and Irving Berlin. Now that same floor with the scuff marks of the tango and cha-cha-cha was transformed into the rhythms of Hitsville, USA. I distinctly remember rehearsing and performing Do You Love Me by The Contours. Bob and his band, the Cornells, backed me up. They were a surf band, and Bob was the lead guitar. what they called a sock hop. Instead of dances from a bygone era, I watched all the kids on the dance floor doing the twist and the mashed potato while I joined in twisting my heart out on stage. It was all very innocent and strictly platonic. Nevertheless, young love was alive and well. Bob invited me to his family's new home, a penthouse apartment at the Comstock Towers on Wilshire Boulevard, between Westwood and Beverly Hills. On the way, Bob stopped to show me his old house on Mapleton Drive in Holmby Hills, where he grew up. He explained to me that his father had decided to donate the property to the YMCA. The YMCA could then turn around and sell it and make the profit for themselves. We entered the elevator of his parents' new place and went to the top floor. His parents graciously met us at the front door and invited us to sit down for the dinner. What a contrast from my home on Grandview Boulevard, where Bob joined us at our very tiny dinette. Here we were in this spacious penthouse seated at a grand dining table, his father seated at one end and his mother at the other. The phone rang and their maid brought it to the dinner table for Art to take the call from none other than the Secretary of State, Dean Rusk. 
All he had to do was turn his back, and we couldn't hear what he was saying. While Bob's dad took the top-secret call, his mom, Lois, turned the conversation to her new, beautiful diamond engagement ring. In all the opulence, I recall when I first met Bob, I would see a crumpled piece of paper hanging out of the back pocket of his jeans. When I asked him what it was, he told me it was his job to deliver his father's paycheck of $38,000 a week to the bank. His dad hosted the TV show, People Are Funny. I knew both sides of Bob regarding his values, and sure, he was from a wealthy family, but he was always down to earth with me. Three years into our relationship, he was so proud of my accomplishments in my career that he talked my parents into letting him take me to his friend and bandmate Pete Lewis's house to watch Shindig together. <laughs> when I came on to sing my song, he lifted me above his shoulders. FYI, his friend Pete's mom was Loretta Young. In my travels for Dr. Pepper, I recall going to a small southern town in Arkansas called Paragould with a population of about 10,000 people. Here was a Dr. Pepper bottling plant opening that serviced a region including Paragould. When I arrived in Little Rock, it was an icy road day. Therefore, I was greeted by a police escort for my safety. The roads on the countryside were mounded up, so the snow fell into the ditches on either side. Still, thin sheets of ice lined the roadway, and it took an expert to navigate. A very accommodating police officer drove carefully past scenes that one could only imagine. All along the road, perched on a higher mound, were little brown shacks. Some had porches with rocking chairs. Some had refrigerators, which the police officer explained was a status symbol that showed neighbors that they had electricity. A few had a car parked in a driveway that was only a clear dirt path adjacent to their houses. And one had a Cadillac, the supreme status symbol in the mid-1960s. To my horror, I saw rivers of urine flowing between the houses, also symbols of dire poverty. The cultural exposure I was receiving only opened my heart more for what was to come. Finally, when we arrived at the bottling plant site, a parade of people were patiently awaiting the event. One young man rode in on his mule barefoot. Almost the whole town showed up for this celebration, plenty of them anticipating jobs that would provide future employment. I stood before the red ribbon I was to cut and gazed out into the crowd. The scissors' sharpness cut through with my first attempt. Now it was officially opened, and we were ready to party. Everyone filed through to see how the thousands of sterilized bottles were conveyed on a belt to be filled with a delicious bubbly beverage recommended at 10, 2, and 4 o'clock, those times of the day when you just might need a friendly picker-upper. By midday, a high school band joined me to sing for the people of Paragould. It was filled to capacity. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band by the Beatles was extremely popular then, and I exchanged Sergeant with Doctor to sing a song that was topping the charts and heard widely on the radio. 
I perform for my usual 40 minutes, including songs like Summertime, Cotton Fields, Money Can't Buy Me Love, and There's a Kind of Hush. Quite a variety of American and British invasion music. The response I received was very generous. Afterward, I parked myself at a table to sign autographs, which was a common custom at these events. The line of people snaked outside the building. For two hours, I greeted every single person, making eye contact with each one. The young man on the donkey stood in line barefoot. He was getting close to the front of the line, and I noticed his complexion. His face was erupted with acne, and I had great empathy for teenagers with this condition. My own skin had been compromised by all the pancake makeup I used for TV and photography. I had a keen awareness, therefore, that we had probably had some things in common, not only being roughly the same age. His turn was next. I looked at him and smiled. He looked back at me as if to say, would you ever consider kissing me? He stood quietly before me as I reached out and handed him an autographed picture. Instead of letting him think that his grand prize was a photo of the Dr. Pepper girl, I asked him to wait. In that moment, there was a compassion between us, one that I decided should be demonstrated not with a conversation, but with a kiss. Opportunities to connect an expression of unity like this afforded me during my travels with Dr. Pepper were golden. I've always looked for and trusted in a sense of oneness and a common denominator. A trip to Winslow for Dr. Pepper was a big deal for me because I had never really been in that part of the country. It was an introduction to my awareness of the Native American culture. First, we were picked up in a red convertible from a little airport in Winslow and driven parade style to where I was greeted by the Hopi chief and invited to dance in a Hopi circle. The tribe gave me a kachina doll that my parents treasured and kept on a shelf in their home. Eventually, it was passed on to me. But by then, the dusty doll had lost its luster and parts of its limbs. That was a magical link at the time to introduce me to the region of northern Arizona, which became a significant part of my life later. It's still in my heart, and I'm very fond of that part of the country. Some other appearances for Dr. Pepper were not necessarily as poignant, but memorable for other reasons. During a visit to Winston-Salem, North Carolina, I was taken on a tour of a golf course. It was May, and so I was wearing a sundress. What I didn't know was about the chiggers, ticks, that attach to you and are likely to be found in warm and humid climates. After reaching the 18th hole, I had at least 30 bites on my legs. The only way that I could remove the stingers that they had left was with nail polish. So I had to swab each one with my clear nail polish, causing the stinger to retract. My legs were covered in lumps and bumps because of the toxic effect that the chiggers had on me. When I was being photographed for the front page of a local newspaper, I must have had that chigger venom in me because I was photographed while touching my tongue to my nose. Another appearance is significant in my memory. Maury, my dad, and I went to St. Louis for Dr. Pepper. 
The usual environment for a Dr. Pepper event was held in a bottling plant to celebrate its opening. This particular event was held outside on a stage in a park-like atmosphere where I drew single-handedly a crowd of 10,000 people. It was very intense. At this stage of my career, I had had a lot of exposure through television and movies, which probably contributed to the format Dr. Pepper chose for me this time. Another distinguishing experience at this time was being taken up in a helicopter to see the Gateway Arch on the Mississippi River. I clearly remember going on this ride without my dad as an extracurricular activity. Most likely, the owner of the Dr. Pepper plant was also the pilot. Obviously, the cabin only had room for one passenger. My hair was in an updo with dozens of bobby pins and hairpins holding it up. The door in the helicopter was left open, so as soon as we took off, wind whirled into the cabin and all my bobby pins flew out. Mark Twain is a proud son from the state of Missouri. His story, The Celebrated Jumping Frog of Calaveras County, must have influenced me during that trip. I was taken out to dinner where I had my first and last frog legs. When I was home in L.A., my daily routine consisted of working at least one primary job, if not multiple, rehearsing and taping for Shindig, recording for Capital, or maybe both in one day. The way my mother took notes in my diary was usually very clinical. She mostly noted where I would be going and what I would be doing when we were leaving, all the comings and goings, and even some of the fees I would be making. Of course, she didn't go with me most of the time, so she didn't have any of the details. For one entry, however, concerning a trip to Chicago to do a show for the Theater Owners of America on behalf of AIP and perform songs like Get Happy, Everybody Loves Somebody, and my old standby, Bill Bailey, she noted that I would be meeting a few days before the AIP's Milt Moritz to rehearse shit for Chicago. Shit? So that's how she really felt. In retrospect, it does my heart good to see my mother tell the truth, even if it took me decades to discover it. Our relationship was cloaked in so much deception. She probably never dreamed I would ever see how she truly felt when she was journaling. Well, the truth has a way of showing itself eventually, and when I finally inherited these diaries of my career, it was evident on the page in her own writing. Wow, so much to unpack there. I distinctly remember when we were sort of working through this um, part of the story and actually you opening one of those diary books from from this time that your mother had kept and actually finding that note that she had put in there and, and uh, you know, I, I think just the conversation that we had about it and that whole idea of, of what that kind of represented in, in you know, one little turn of phrase. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and at <laughs> it's uh, uh, and as an aside, you know, Milt Moritz, who uh, who worked at ARP as the head of advertising and publicity, he was the the person sort of behind you know some of that advertising for Beach Blanket Bingo, which I know we're going to speak about in our next episode. Where I think the tagline for that was when one thousand bodies hit five hundred blankets. So <laughs> <laughs> an expert, an expert at 
at publicity and for our audience who's perhaps fans of of some other work um they might be interested to know that his son neil moritz uh is the producer of all the fast and the furious movies um so uh you know the hereditary uh, the teen yeah the teen uh the the um ability to reach the teen audience really continues in that family but I want to, um, you know, I, I really want to break down what you were speaking about in, in a lot of ways um, because I often talk about how when we've had a similar experience with another person, it breeds a sense of empathy or, as we were saying at the beginning of this episode, compassion. And I think there's two parts to that really reflected in your your reading. And the first one's with Bob Linkletter. Now, Bob's life was quite different from yours materially, um, but I wonder if some of the issues that he faced with his own father, Art Linkletter, in particular, you could relate to. You know, I have to just recall what Bob told me Mm. because I think that my father, you know, and my adopted dad ended up being uh, living for four and a half, almost five years in an orphanage because mm. of his mother's illness and his father had to work yeah. um, from the age of four and a half to what, four and a half to like nine or so. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and I believe that Art Linkletter spent time in an orphanage at a young age as well. Okay, right. And... You you know, I remember Bob sharing that with me, and there was some affiliation with YMCA, which Mm. is probably why he decided to give back, you know, his home Mm. to that organization, you know, as as a form of gratitude. Yeah, yeah. So linking, linking the two fathers' childhoods together, you know, Mm. um, people behave differently when you are deprived of this kind of um, sequential, you know, development in childhood. Mm. Um, yes. No, we've spoken about this in, in other episodes, that whole idea of that foundation that's built in childhood around, uh, you know, safety or feeling that you have a secure base from which to explore the world and, and those experiences sometimes, whether it be a death of a parent or um, an abandonment, whether it's a, you know, a so-called deliberate abandonment or, or one that happens by circumstance, you know, in, in your adopted dad's case of his mother being ill and him, he and his brother Lou having to be uh, put into an orphanage for a few years, or I guess in the case of Art Linkletter, though I, I don't know the particulars of his story, that can often compromise that development of of that understanding of the world and that ability to feel safe or to feel that one's needs can be met and um, along those lines. So that, sure. that kind of helps me explain why, <laughs> even though he knew me, mm. you know, at that ribbon-cutting ceremony, that whatever happened, you know, in his own life about being competitive, you yeah. know, here I am, I don't know, maybe I was 16, 17 at the time. And, you know, he was a successful man, uh, mm. adult, whose um, competitiveness or whatever, I, I don't know how to explain, you know, what the source of that competition was, but rather than... Yeah. Rather than, you know, bowing to a young, young lady, 
but shall we say, <laughs> and giving mm-hmm. it a courteous, you know, being a courteous mm-hmm. person, mm-hmm. you know, he, he kind of bullied me. He kind of pushed me aside a little bit so that he could take the spotlight and get the attention. I hadn't thought about it that way in terms of thinking of what, you know, drove that. I mean, I know you speak often and we will in in the future about, you know, certain predominantly male figures who you came across sort of again and again um, who would often, uh, you know, attempt to demonstrate that dominance. Um, but I think, you know, it's something, yeah, that looked as innocuous as a, as a ribbon cutting um, to sort of look at what, what perhaps drove that, particularly given he knew you. This wasn't just business. He had known you for a very long time by this point. It, yes. And, and the idea, you know, that I said, and I had to acquiesce again. Mm-hmm. Um, what I mean by that is to be non-combative, to um, decide that if someone needs something, as I understood that my mother and, and Maury needed certain things that I have to say coming in as an empathetic soul, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. coming in with, uh, and, and I'd like to go deeper into that, having an empathy that's so deep that even as a very small child, you, in essence, acquiesce to mm. someone else's needs. And I think that's just how, you know, how I came out. But so many of us on planet Earth, you know, as I understand, and and um, we can go into this a little bit, mm. because mm. I know your specialty in your, in your field of psychology is dealing with empathy. Mm. And that is uh, one of the primary reasons other than I love you <laughs> and that, you know, I, I just really enjoy sharing my life with you is that, you know, you, you've always had a wonderful understanding and empathy for me. And Thank I you. hope that you feel that I have returned that. <laughs> it is, it, Absolutely. Absolutely. And what I understand is that there are some of us that come to earth and I hope that it's many, many of us mm, that, mm. that, you know, when, when we um, inhabit our new life, when we start developing in the womb, that we um, maybe have a greater uh, ability to go beyond our five senses. In other words, have an intuition mm, have mm. the ability to see farther you know where in some cultures you know you're damned for that you're condemned for seeing that much and in other groups you know you're praised for it you know it's mm. like tell me what you <laughs> see you know i can't <laughs> see that and um and and I think that's another phase of what we are approaching in this 2021 is the ability to have more of that visionary ability. And so going back to an empathetic mm. soul. Mm. So in dealing with empathy, you're dealing with your five senses. You're dealing with your sight, your sound, your smell, your taste, your touch. Mm-hmm. Things that aren't vis- visible, <laughs> that you, you can't prove scientifically, yeah. <laughs> but you know that are there. 
for instance, let's say in a yeah, yeah, yeah let's say in a dream, mm. you know, um, that you have a visit from a deceased um, person. Mm. You have a visit, and in your dream, that person is so real. Where does that come from? And can you trust that? Mm. Can you trust it mm. as some other dimension manifesting so that, you know, you're going beyond your five senses? It's an interesting one, isn't it? That that dream of whether you see it as, yeah, going beyond those five senses or coming from somewhere else. Or even if we, you know, we see it and there's certainly the research suggesting that the way that we work through relationships is often through dreams. I know we've spoken about this before, but it, it does really highlight that bond that we have with people that empathic bond that we have with those that we're involved in and sometimes it it plays out in dreams the kind of um, concerns we have when we're awake when we don't quite know how to process I think sometimes you know Mm -hmm. come out in that nighttime and what I understand is that when you have those those other abilities, but you're in society and you're in this 3D world that there is a shrinking of the senses that give you that, mm. you know, um, other potential. Um, it, there's a shrinking to fit in to the five sensory world. Yeah. Yep. And um, like I say, you know, some circles accept it more than others. And um, the ones that do accept it, I think are expansive and, uh, you know, can go to the mountaintop and, you know, just see more, you know, as, um, as an ability to kind of trust their own sensibility of, you know, what path they should take in my little song, you know, love it away. It's like, I talk about that inner voice and Mm. you hear so many people now talk about, Listening to your inner voice, listening to your heart. And that too, you know, is so essential. It's actually crucial to go to your heart. You know, the ideas that come into your mind, drop into your heart and let your heart tell you if it's true or not before <laughs> before you let your mind think- make, a, make the decision for you. Because... <laughs> I think you're really honing in on, on, yeah, there's this, and I'd like to, I, I think we should probably devote a future, you know, entire episode to this because just when you say that I'm thinking of a couple of things and the first is that, that inner voice, that the ability to harness that inner voice, but to, to, to see it for what it is as well. And, and to separate that, that, that voice that, that helps us to know what to do and, and who to trust and, and, you know, something something beyond, you know, what we see out in the world, but the difference between that and say our inner critic, that very critical voice, which, which can be a source of good judgment and a source of good advice, but can also go into that hypercritical phase. But also just out in the world, when you talk about when someone's empathic, when someone at a very early age has that ability to, to feel what other people are feeling or to hone in onto, you know, what they are experiencing, how sometimes that empathy can go into Mm. self-sacrifice where because we feel so much for other Mm. people we take on so much their emotion it it also means that we lose our um ability to to either know or to honor what we want what we feel what we think because we we Mm. acquiesce as you said um whether it's with someone representing rc cola or whether it's our our parents or Mm -hmm. or our Mm -hmm. caregivers 
Yes, yes. <laughs> and, um, you know, when we see, you know, Bob Linkletter, for example, you know, this idea that I think he, you know, perhaps, I um, mean, I didn't know him and I know eventually he sort of, he, he wanted to, you know, he was doing, uh, he was in the Cornells with Pete Lewis. He did his own music briefly. I know he worked with a couple of quite prolific California surf producers, Bob Hafner and Tony Hilda. Um, but eventually he gave that up and sort of, you know, I guess, did what his, what his father perhaps wanted him to do, which mm-hmm. was to become a businessman. And, you know, it's, it kind of seems that perhaps he had that struggle himself between what other people wanted and, mm-hmm. and perhaps I what he, he wanted to be. Uh, you know, I mean, of course, he's been gone for many years and he passed away at such a young age, yeah. only 35. But um, mm. and I mm. never I never had any contact with him. Uh, once I, you know, was married and so forth at 21. Um, yeah. Yeah. But what I think mm. happened is that he was, he was um, younger than his brother, Jack. And his brother, Jack, mm-hmm. as I recall, was um, the prototypical, you know, um, golden boy for his father. And, mm. you know, took on mm. his father's legacy and his image. And, um, and Bob mm. really, you know, ha- wanted to pursue his own interest. Um, which another comment I have to make is that in the music world, um, to be honest, <laughs> like in any, any <laughs> world, but especially in the music world or in the arts, you know, you look at a very small percentage of successful artists in any one of those chosen fields. Mm. And, you know, really um, so many, 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 I would say probably 90 to 95% of all musicians, you know, uh, um, only make it to a certain point on that ladder of success. So for Bob, I feel that, you know, if he couldn't reach, um, you know, some satisfaction of success that he would, you know, that Mm. he would gain the uh, admiration and approval of his dad to Mm. have his own separate Mm. expression, um, that he would just conform, you know, to to win his father's approval. Yeah, yeah, that's. I, I was reading a little bit about Bob, um, you know, in preparation for this. And I know there was a, there was a lady who, who did some music work with him and she kind of wrote on her website that at some point he lost interest in, in music. And I, I, it's interesting your insider sort of perspective or perspective of knowing that situation of perhaps, yeah, when he couldn't reach those lofty heights that his father, of course, did for 60, 70, however many years Art Linkletter was was um, doing his thing that, um, you know, perhaps that conformity um, kicks in. But it, um, you know, it. I think when we're talking about this empathy based on shared experience, you know, obviously that, of course, has its place. But I think you mentioned that some people are just born with that em- empathy muscle, I guess I call it, that empathy muscle to go beyond being able to understand their own peers or contemporaries or what they see right in front of them. There seems to be that empathic connection that some people just have. And I think for you, that empathic connection you had with people, you know, when you toured with Dr. Pepper, regardless of socioeconomic differences or age or race or gender or whatever else, 
I think that was probably your <laughs> secret weapon, that ability, you know, to <laughs> that's demonstrated when you went to Paragold, where you, you know, where you went elsewhere to be able to connect on, on some, maybe you'd call mm-hmm. it a heart level, um, you know, with people mm-hmm. who perhaps were quite different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, um, it's just kind of remarkable, you know, when, when you think about the idea of different even you know, I, I mean, growing up, mm. I I was kind of talked into thinking that I was special. I didn't like that either, mm. you know, because mm. uh, you know later on <laughs> in my life, um, for anyone that's into astrology, I had my my birth chart uh, done, and when I realized that I had some aspects of what they call Sagittarius. Um, in in Sagittarius, mm. there is a quality of of really we are all one, and you you know mm. you can come mm. in to learn that in all kinds of ways, or you can come in to mm. teach that. And when you have that quality, um, you somehow it just it's deeper. It's just deeper than than the mm. surface and whatever was going on inside me from such an early age and maybe even in the womb that that I started this um, ability to yes it may have been sacrifice and I know that there's still lots of stuff inside me that needs to be worked on mm. you know I <laughs> mean um, mm. There's still a child in there that, you know, needs some attention. Um, yeah. But, um, but the idea of, of having something in common, some common denominator, you know, I just always looked for that. And I still do. I always try mm. to go beyond mm. what's different and stop it there. Now, there are situations where I'm not given the chance. And that's where people really who do want to look for that common denominator, they read. And that's another quality of an extra, you know, um, empathetic soul that you're able to Mm. read Mm. that person so that you do not enter conflict when you, you, you realize that there's a limitation and, you know, you, you, then the compassion that's when compassion for someone who who recognizes that 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 person that you want to find a common denominator with, you know, doesn't have the capacity at that moment. And that's where love is essential mm. because everybody feels love. Everybody. I mean, when you look at your dog, Lucy, you, you know, you she knows you love her. <laughs> you don't have to communicate you know, mm. in a, a lot of different ways, it's, it's a look and, mm. and it's the mm. same For way sure. with human beings <laughs> and, and all kinds, all life, you know, um, <laughs> it, it, but, but we are really, really, really in transition now. And, and um, it's, mm. it's just an amazing time to be alive on planet earth. That's that's such a I think important thing to say that with everything that's going on and 
and so many of us get despaired and just think this is <laughs> what is happening and how much worse can this get but there is opportunity in that as well and you know I think it's kind of very you know perfect timing I know late last year um, you released onto YouTube and it's also available on iTunes and Spotify and all the, the usual places but your song Love It Away you released a, a, a remix of it for its 10th anniversary and I think that sort of anthem for these times um, is really mm. needed more well, than ever. Well, <laughs> it was my joy, you know, when I received a call <laughs> from a friend who said, gee, I like that song, but here we are, you know, the message is great, but I'm alone in my house and, and I want to dance. I, you mm. know, <laughs> I can't go outside, mm. <laughs> you know, at this time to you know, have the liberty of exercising and going out and walking and so forth. So I want to dance in my house. Could you change the rhythm of, of your track? And my dear friend Maurice, you know, lent a hand and, and engineered a, a new rhythm mm-hmm. track. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that was, that was like a Christmas present. It was, it was truly a gift. And yes, and, <laughs> and those messages, you know, when, when they come, I think, because you know I've written a handful of songs in my life and for Bob Dylan and the likes Mm -hmm. of Dylan and you Mm -hmm. know song songwriters that write for their their entire life um, they know they all know and going back to the classics you know Mozart could not have written a 350 part symphony with a (laughs) without erasing Mm -hmm. a note for, you know, at a, such yeah. a young age that, you know, that that energy mm. comes from somewhere else and it comes through you and you've, you're the facilitator, you know, and 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 um, so Absolutely. that message came through to me and and I'm just so grateful for it. And it's a tool for me to vocalize and. <laughs> and theorize and you know and and hopefully you know um, <laughs> just uh communicate to to you and to our listeners and to anyone else that is is open to that message of of love it's 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 my favorite four letter word <laughs> i was wondering where that was going to go and i'm pleased yes of all the four letter <laughs> words that is my I'm... favorite <laughs> <laughs> Love is a four-letter word, as they say. Um, but I'm I'm so pleased to be back doing this this what we what we do and having this conversation again in the new year um, because I think it's so important to us and um, we get so much out of it. And I hope anyone listening out there gets so much um, out of it as well. As and as always, as we said, we'd love to hear from those of you listening about. Um, what you think of this episode or anything else we talk about as, as, as Donna's 1960s column um, in a magazine uh, advised us. <laughs> Indeed. Oh, Adam, it is a great pleasure to begin this year with you. And um, let's just keep our seat belts buckled. <laughs> Absolutely. Until next time. Yes, love.